This is Author Talk, presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. Author Talk is a show about new books and the authors who wrote them. It's an opportunity for prospective readers to hear directly from the writers, to hear what inspired them to write and publish, and to hear all the inside details about their books. Here is Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for Author Talk. This is Jay Douglas Barker. Our book today deals with an unusual topic and one that should be of a fascinating interest to most of our listeners. It's titled, Menus and Memoirs of a Yacht Chef. And uh, it tells not only her life story, but also shares some of her secrets of dining success. Joining me from the west coast of Canada, Marianne J. Gardner, my author. Welcome, Marianne. Good morning, Jay. Nice to be here. Pleasure to visit with you. Your story, 276 pages. How did you, first of all, become interested in becoming a chef, first of all, and one that specialized in dealing with those who are, say, a little better off than most of the populace? Yes, they certainly are. Um, first of all, I guess I, I've always had a passion for food and cooking and always been interested and curious about how to... Um, how to make things happen in the galley or in the kitchen. Sorry, <laughs> I'm used to saying galley. And um, so there's the, the passion for food, and then um, I've always had a passion for water as well and boating of any sort. So um, I've always been hanging around the water as much as I can, and I got into boating, and then, um, you know, I wanted to fine-tune my cooking, and, and so what better way to do it than to cook for the elite? Phenomenal. Now, if I'm a high school student or a junior high kid in the United States and I have a passion for cooking and a passion for maritime experiences, how do I begin the path of becoming a yacht chef? Well, there's lots of different ways of doing it. Um, so what some people do is they start out by uh, working on yachts or on sailboats, maybe in a smaller way, maybe as a deckhand or as a stewardess, and then get more training, get more experience, and work their way up. You can start by getting some maritime training, or you can start by getting some cooking training, and then work your way in. So sometimes people start as a chef, and then they start working on yachts. Sometimes they start as a, a deckhand or as a captain, or in other ways working in the maritime field and work into the chef, there's a, various ways you can do it. And so, there's a lot of crew agencies uh, around the world that can help you get started as well and get you trained. Interesting sideline. You were born in Alberta, Canada, not a province that is known for its um, waterways that I can remember. That's true. We were very landlocked, but it didn't. Uh, I don't know what happened to me. My mother was from Vancouver. Maybe it was in the genes. I'm not sure, but... I've always, from the time I was born, you couldn't get me out of the water and away from the water. So um, it was only natural when I got into uh, traveling, and then I got into boating as well. How extensive And um, how extensive sorry. has been your travel? Uh, I started traveling a little late in life, when I was about 30. Uh, you know, I did the odd little trip before that, but I uh, took off to Europe for about six months, and... Um, decided I'd do that as a trial and see if I liked it. And after six months in Europe, I decided I hadn't even scratched the surface. And at that point, I had started getting into boating as well. So I said, that's it. I'm not going back to Canada, not yet anyway, and um, pursued yachting and um, just traveling at that point. So I traveled all through Europe, did my training for, um, for the yachting there, Sailed across the Atlantic, worked uh, doing sailing charters in the Caribbean, and traveled all through the Caribbean. Then um, later across the South Pacific on my own boat, mm. I bought a 39-foot sailboat. That's actually the last chapter in the book, is about my experiences sailing for eight months across the South Pacific to New Zealand. Wow. And that was quite exciting. Incredible so, adventure. Um, then on to Australia. So I've traveled a fair amount, still in my, in my mind. I've only scratched the surface. There's so much to see and do out there. 276 pages. When you begin to write this, uh, who did you have in mind would be the uh, the one reader that would find this a fascinating tale? Well, to me, anyone that, that 
loves cooking or loves food or loves travel or loves boating is going to be interested in this book because it, it tells the stories of what it's actually like to work on these yachts. It tells the stories of our travel adventures around the world, everything from New England to New Zealand. It talks about, uh, it has the recipes that are easy to follow for all the food that I cooked on the yachts or a lot of the food. And it's all done in simple terms so that your average home cook can can pull off any of these recipes with average ingredients. Marianne, what's the largest yacht that you've been associated with as a chef? Uh, it would be a 153-footer, a beautiful boat based out of Sausalito. And that boat, uh, that yacht, is a four-deck yacht um, loaded with everything you could ever imagine, including, I think I counted, seven dishwashers at one point. Wow, amazing. <laughs> Privately owned, or is it is it corporate? Yep. Privately owned. Yeah, it was privately owned um, by a, one fellow, and uh, that boat spends the the winters either in Puerto Vallarta. Pardon me, the winters in Puerto Vallarta and the summers either in Alaska or in Italy. So she travels a lot. Amazing! And have you taken those long journeys to Italy as well? I haven't done the trip to Italy. Not no. Italy yet. Um, I've been to Italy, traveled in Europe when I first started traveling, as I was mentioning, and I have sailed through there on sailboats when I was doing sailboat deliveries in the Mediterranean and in all over Europe. But uh, I haven't been to Italy on that yacht, no. My personal experience has been on large cruising ships with maybe seven to 700 to maybe 2,000 passengers. These are much smaller ships. Have you encountered any difficult uh, travel experiences on the seas, on the high seas? In terms of weather? In terms thinking? of weather specifically, yes. Yeah, well, there's always the weather, you know. When we train for with our maritime school, we learn about weather, and, and experience, of course, is going to teach us what to watch for. And there's always weather out there. You always have to watch for it. And I've been chased out of the northern hemisphere by a hurricane, and I've faced those 30-foot seas off the coast of Colombia, and I've had some pretty interesting experiences, but uh, I always felt confident because... I was trained well, and and I'm cautious. Uh, some people say, aren't you afraid to go to sea? And I say, well, it's a good thing to be a little afraid, but it's not a good thing to be a lot afraid. If you're a lot afraid, you probably shouldn't be there. <laughs> True. But if you're a little afraid, you're going to be cautious and careful, which I am, and, and um, I've never had a, a really serious problem. Uh, Marianne, share with my listeners the process of writing your book. You have some great recipes, which that part, Probably wouldn't have been too complicated, but what about the rest of the story that's included in memoirs and menus? Sorry, the question is... Uh, what, what about the other stories? What else do you share in your book of menus and memoirs of a yacht chef? Besides, besides the, the menus? Recipes? Yes, besides the recipes themselves. What I've done is I've taken 10 different yachts that I've worked on in 10 different locations around the world and devoted a chapter to each one. So each, each chapter tells stories about what it's like to work on that yacht, maybe a little bit about the owners or about the yacht, about the location somewhere in the world, and, and sometimes the trouble we got into as crew, sometimes how we got out of it, uh, maybe what we do on our day off. It, the idea is to give the people a glimpse of what it's like to be in those countries, to work on the yachts, and, and sort of what it's really like. For example, one of the yachts that I worked on was quite small, and it had a very tiny galley, and I I actually called the galley an afterthought. Uh, It was just sort of a little bump out from the the main salon, so people would sit around in the salon and watch everything that happened in the galley. And so I had to work with the constraints of that small galley and, and very little storage, but I still had to produce the four or five course meals out in the Bahamas or out at sea for maybe a week or 10 days without any grocery stores. So it talks about some of the things like that and and, uh, or maybe some of the owners and and the things they like to do. So there's just a variety of things in the stories. And a lot of people buy the book for the stories and they say they really enjoy the stories and learning what it's really like. And other people buy it for the recipes. Some people say they really enjoy the menus because it helps put the food together and, of course, it's all wine paired by Total Wine and More. So they've done an excellent job on, you know, putting some nice wines with the meals as well. 
So it's to me, it's sort of a total package. Uh, you can put it on the coffee table. People can read a little story, or you can have it in the kitchen and and uh, use the the recipes. There's there's just a lot of different reasons to have the book, and and it attracts a lot of different people. Uh, Marianne, what is the funniest or most exciting story that you share, either in your book or can share with our listeners, that is, um, you know, suitable for a, a general audience? Well, there are lots of lots of funny stories in there. One of them, I guess, my husband likes to tell. My husband now, but when we were sailing across the South Pacific on my sailboat um, back in 2001, 2002, we were sailing across the South Pacific and and um, so I had just met him shortly before that. But anyway, we're crossing the equator, and what you're supposed to do is um, give a, a tribute to Neptune. You're supposed to, to dump a, a bottle of champagne in the water, and uh, that's your tribute to Neptune. And then the next little thing you're supposed to do as sort of a ritual is you're supposed to jump in and have a swim. So it was a beautiful day, so we didn't have the money for champagne. We were just on our own sailboat. We weren't on a fancy yacht then. So we dumped a can of beer in instead, and we <laughs> called that our tribute to Neptune. That's and then I went for a swim, and, and um, I guess Neptune wasn't very happy with his beer because I came up from the water, and I had a big man-of-war jellyfish draped all down my side. Ouch. And I don't know if you know man-of-war, but they... I know that they can kill a person within five minutes if Absolutely. they don't get attended to. Wow. <laughs> so wow. I came flying up into the cockpit and said, quick, do something. So he said, what do I do? And I said, well, go down to the, I've got a, a first aid book at sea. Get the first aid book out and see what you're supposed to do for jellyfish things in Man of War. So he dialed it up and he got a little twinkle in his eye and he says, it says that I should urinate on you. <laughs> I said, no, don't do that. What's next? <laughs> Give me a can of beer. No, that might have been enough. <laughs> so uh -huh. uh, anyway, it goes on and on, and obviously I was okay in the end. It was a, a bit of a nasty sting, and it took two or three weeks to get over it, but Ouch. I did live through it. But we were 1,500 miles from shore at that point, hmm. the farthest you can be from land anywhere in the world, and of all places to get stung by a jellyfish. Ouch. Well, that's a fascinating tale. That's a fascinating story. Your book has uh, some wonderful recipes in it. It is an exciting tale. There must have been some challenges in getting this completed. How long did it take to complete, and what were the challenges you overcame? Um, from start to finish, it took me about four years to write the book. Uh, started out just a compilation of all my recipes or all my favorite recipes, and then I decided to add the stories to give people a bit of a background of what it's like to work on the yachts. And then I thought some people have trouble putting food together, so I created the menus as well, put those together, and then I thought, well, really, it should be paired, and I don't, didn't feel I knew enough about wine. That's not my specialty, so I talked to Total Wine, and they did that. So the whole process, of course, I was working on yachts in between, too, and when you work on the yachts, they can be up to 18 or 20 hours a day, seven days a week. It's not mm -hmm. something, it's not a nine-to-five job, so... It was hard trying to, to fit the writing in amongst that. So it was about three years of off and on, and then the last year I took the year off and just devoted it to writing the book and just getting it finished up. So it was quite a process, and it was a good learning experience for me. I, I learned a lot about uh, writing, and I grew a lot, and it was really interesting putting the whole thing together. I felt like it was something that I had to do, and Obviously, it's uh, something that other people are enjoying, too, because it's quite a popular book. It is a great book, and uh, these uh, tales and these uh, insights were from working on motor yachts in size from 71 feet all the way up to 153 feet. I can't imagine anything of that magnitude that's privately owned, but you've been fortunate enough to, to experience that. Where do we get copies of Menus and Memoirs of a Yacht Chef? People can write to my website. It's www.menusandmemoirs.com. That's probably the, the best way to do it. They also can, I'm sure, do a search online and find it in par probably Barnes & Noble or some of the other uh, online, Amazon, exactly. and so on. It's, sure, It's online as well. My website is probably the easiest to go to, but you can just do a search for Menus and Memoirs of a Yacht Chef or search for my name, and it'll come up. Marianne J. Gardner has been my guest, and her book 
is Menus and Memoirs of a Yacht Chef. Thank you for joining me today, Marianne. Are you planning to do a future book, follow-up perhaps? Well, the, the book actually became way too big, and I did have to condense it. So I do have uh, a couple of chapters that had to be taken out. So it's possible. The other thing that I'd like to do is just do a general book. So there is a, a possibly a cookbook that could come out. And the other thing is a, a subsequent book of just general travel adventures and sort of the funny experiences I ran into, you know, having a tank aimed at me in Northern Ireland Oops. or fired around me in Panama and some of the, the the funny travel stories not necessarily related to yachts but uh, they could be as well would love to read that this one menus and memoirs of a yacht chef our guest Marianne J Gardner thank you for joining me today Marianne thank you Jay look forward to visiting with you again in the future for author talk this is Jay Douglas Barker you're listening to author talk We'll be back right after these messages. Hi everybody, this is Pete Six of Beatles and Beyond. Why don't we all come together and hear some of the tracks off the latest Beatles release on this radio station. Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear these latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. This is Author Talk. My name is Brian Houston. Today we are talking about a very controversial base closing. The name of the book is Presidio of San Francisco, the subtitle Post Closure. And the author of the book is Dr. Robert Curtis. And Mr. Curtis, or Dr. Curtis is on the phone with us right now from his home in Nevada. How are you doing, Dr. Curtis? Very well, thank you. Thank you very much for being on with us this afternoon. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the book, uh, again, The Presidio of San Francisco. Well, I was 15 years old during the Army at World War II. I spent 25 years in the United States Air Force, so I am retired Air Force, and went right into federal civil service, where I had to... Some outstanding positions, uh, one of them being uh, the Human Resource Officer for the United Nations in New York City, which was uh, working right out of the White House, I should say. That had so, to be quite an experience. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, both retired, but uh, never stopped working. Good for you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the book, the, the name of it again, Presidio of San Francisco. It's published by Author House. Tell me about the book. Well, well, the, I have to little background on myself first. Uh, okay. I was uh, in Germany for 15 years with the Corps of Engineers as a management consultant. And uh, when the wall came down in Germany, uh, the uh, Congress stopped all funding for... Uh, nuclear military construction, and my reassignment was at the Presidio, where I was uh, an advisor, uh, personal management advisor to General Harrison, who was the commanding general of the 6th U.S. Army. Uh, and uh, uh, the Presidio was on the congressional hit list for base closure uh, since uh, 1988 uh, under Brock. And uh, I just happened to have written the base closure plan and, and coordinated it and sent it to DOD, who approved it. And uh, a year later, we closed the base. And uh, at that time, I had an option of uh, moving on or uh, getting married to a beautiful woman in Petaluma, California. And, and I elected the woman to the job. <laughs> Good choice. 
All right, so uh, with that background, tell us now about the book, The Presidio of San Francisco. Well, the Presidio, you'd have to describe the Presidio, one of the most outstanding, or if the, the most outstanding uh, United States Army post in the country. Uh, it's the oldest uh, that was uh, literally stolen from the Spanish uh, garrison there, uh, historically. And I do cover the book uh, from the beginning uh, to, uh, to the base closure, and then uh, I, I thought I should add a postscript to it, which is uh, what happened to Lucas Films, who took it over and commercialized it. And the, the main thrust of the, the book is that, and I should say that I, I cross-referenced it uh, as an author with uh, six other uh, Army posts and uh, Air Force uh, bases that were closed. And I have to uh, conclude that I agree with Brock that, that, that there were reasons to close every one of those bases. However, the Presidio was an exception. The Presidio was a uh, a show place, you know, for, for the United States Army on the West Coast. It, it, it was an absolute beautiful place. And uh, it had its assets, which was a hospital, Lebanon Hospital, which serviced 60,000 disabled veterans. And when they closed that, there were 60,000 uh, disabled veterans who could not uh, seek uh, medical services there. They were they were literally thrown to the winds uh, without any compensation, uh, and I, I had no backup, you know, on sixty thousand veterans. But there was also three hundred thousand square feet of office space available, vacant office space, and the idea San Francisco is the most highest rent. Uh, district. We had uh, no less than 12 federal agencies there, and GSA was paying through the nose for rent, you know, in the millions. We could have moved those 12 federal agencies onto the base and saved GSA a bunch of money, but the United States Army wouldn't recognize that as, as an asset, you know, a plus versus the minus of closing the base. So my conclusion was that although it met the Brock criteria, it should never have been closed. It should have been kept as a showplace, and, and the federal agencies could have used the base with all of its amenities, you know, commissary, PX, post office, travel, uh, and that was my conclusion. Uh, but, of course, I'm just one apple on the tree, and the United States Army was more interested in showing Congress savings. So that's what happened. Would you say this is a, a common story with all the bases that were closed? Or no. Were, okay. No. On, on the other six bases that I'm cross-referencing, they were training bases, and what happened to those training bases, they were just moved in total to airplanes, and the personnel were just moved in total to, to another base. But you have to realize that when you move 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 people on an Air Force base to another Air Force base, there's no room for them. You've you got to spend uh, a lot of bucks to, to build uh, uh, facilities for them to work in, and uh, they're going to cause... Uh, an increase in workload for everybody to include non-appropriated funds. Uh, you know, like the commissary. The commissary would double. The PX would double. It's and when you double workload, you got to add people. So, so although you show a savings uh, uh, on, on one base, you have to increase the cost at, at the, the the gaining base. But I would say this is a caveat. The cities uh, in all six of those bases, and I cover this, the, they took over propriety uh, 
uh, for an apple and orange and commercialized it. And, and they're, they're all successes, and my book covers that. Is the Presidio a success like that now? Yes, Lucasfilms took it over, and I my book covers every part of it. Uh, for example, uh, uh, I have to say that San Francisco, uh, the city of San Francisco, and, and the Bay Area really got hit on base closure. The army, the army, and well, let's just say DOD was critical, uh, and one of the reasons why they were the city was offered a battleship. And the city told them they didn't want it. So I think DOD had a hard-on for San Francisco because they didn't close just the Presidio. They closed Treasure Island. They closed the, the San Francisco uh, military port and uh, uh, everything that was military around that area. Uh, Fort Mason, uh, it, it, was, it was almost uh, as if San Francisco dried up militarily. But uh, that's that's in my book. What was it that prompted you? Obviously, you have strong feelings about the base and about the closing of the base. But what was it that prompted you to uh, sit down at the keyboard and start writing a book about it? Well, I I was pri- pri- privy to all of the personal actions. Uh, my my job was a personal consultant to the commanding general, and that covered twelve western states. And and one of the, one of the things, other than depriving sixty thousand veterans, twelve twelve states, the, the Presidio was responsible for the emergency care of twelve western states, mainly San Francisco. In time of an earthquake, the, the, we were the key key players in getting relief emergency relief into the city. Uh, uh, I was on emerg- uh, one of the emergency teams that could call medical people from ships to come into San Francisco. Uh, I mean, order them to come in. Uh, we could order any reserve people, uh, military police to come in. And all of a sudden, all this, this responsibility is either in Atlanta, Georgia, or San Antonio, Texas. And how do you do that? You, you, you know, how do, how do you sit in Texas and try to play games in San Francisco? It, it, it was just unheard of. So that prompted me to write the book. How long did it take you to write it? Well, I played with it for years. Uh, you know, as an author, I be critical of my own work, my own organization, and I kept adding to it, adding to it, you know. And, uh, oh, the, the, main, the main reason I started it uh, was I, I was a student, uh, a graduate student at uh, Golden Gate University. My uh, thank you is uh, in the book to Dr. Otto, uh, who was the uh, president of the university, uh, who I took one of the courses with, and I had to write my dissertation to get my uh, uh, doctorate in uh, business administration, and that 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 started it. I actually wrote a, a, a dissertation, very very much a small version of my book, and that that I just kept adding to it, you know, as uh, as an aside. Where did you obtain all of the uh, sensitive background material that you needed to write this book with uh, the evidence that you have to make your case? Well, all the paperwork that that, that had to do with the base closure went, went through me. Uh, either I added to it or wrote it. And, uh, of course, most of the information comes under the Privacy Act. And uh, I did coordinate with DOD before I, I had it published, uh, to get their uh, okay on releasing it. Now, uh, and then you had at some point chose to retire and move to Carson City, Nevada, apparently at the epitome of your career, correct? That's correct. And why did you do that? Uh, well, I, I was telling you, there was a young lady called Donna <laughs> Curtis, who's now my wife, who I fell badly in love with. Uh, she came from Petaluma, which is just north of uh, San Francisco. I had just come out of Germany and, and hadn't dated the, an American girl. I was a widower and hadn't dated the American girl. And the, the first day that uh, I was there, I 
I went to a, a restaurant a uh, which had a band playing in it, and mm. my wife was standing there, and I asked her to dance, and the arrow went right through me. <laughs> sounds like so, another book. Love, love overcame career. There you go. Well, that's a good choice, and it sounds like another book. My wife is trying to get me to do that. <laughs> like I said, it, it, I was 15, and in World War II and, and became a machine gunner at 15. So uh, when I was discharged, I was 17. And uh, when I was drafted, uh, at 18, I was drafted. Now, how I got into the service was I used my brother's birth certificate. Oh, my. Well, World War II was, was a hot issue. Sure. I mean, everybody was, was just volunteering to go go to war. And... Uh, at 18, uh, being drafted, I didn't want to go back into the infantry, so I elected to go into the uh, Army Air Corps, which became the United States Air Force in 1947. And my career, my educational career, uh, began uh, very funny. Uh, I was taking an AGC t- test with 160 questions, and being a, a, a literal 15-year illiterate, uh, I got to 40, and then I went A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, and came out with 129, oh my. which was equal to a college graduate. So rather than going to Chinook Air Force Base uh, uh, as a, uh, to school as a mechanic, jet mechanic, I wound up with a pe- personnel uh, office in the Pentagon, yeah. and that started that started my education. So, <laughs> I, t- after 25 years, I, I graduated in Tokyo uh, from the University of Maryland with a BS degree in business and, and English. That's, and, and that just that that was the changing of my career. Yeah, that's a, that's quite a story. Now, what what would you want people to come away from reading your book feeling? What is it? The, what's the takeaway from your book? The, the United States Army is a beautiful organization, and and so is so is the government. But their their care for personal management is lacking. Uh, when they the Air Force when when they go somewhere and and. Uh, uh, when I create a new new uh, base, they build their runways first so, so that they can land their airplanes. Then they build their hangars, and then then at the very very end, they worry about their people. So uh, I think the DOD is totally lacking in personal management uh, and the treatment of the, the, their soldiers and their airmen. And and my book be- becomes that and it's it's. Almost anti-military, you, you know, in personal management, and that's my specialty. Where can we get your book? Right now. I've got a dozen copies uh, uh, on my desk, and I've got one in front of me just for a reference. It's been published. It's on Amazon. If you go to uh, open your computer and go to search and just say Presidio of San Francisco post-closure, it'll show you the, the blue cover of my book with the uh, Golden Gate Bridge and a synopsis of, of the of the book, but I, I would say this: it's 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 up for distribution and wholesaling right now. Outstanding. We hope everybody will uh, check out the book. Uh, the name of it again is Presidio of San Francisco Post Closure, and the author of the book is Dr. Robert Curtis. Dr. Curtis, thank you so much for coming on with us today. And thank you for for talking to me. I appreciate your help. Best of luck on the book, and we will look forward to it once again. The name of the book, Presidio of San Francisco Post Closure by Dr. Robert Curtis. I'm Brian Houston. This is Author Talk. Thank you very much for listening. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Homeschooling? Half questions? Get your pen and paper ready. It's the sociable homeschooler, Vivian McNinney. Fridays at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. After a handsome blue-eyed Texan fell in love with Vivian at the Victoria Station in London, she found herself at DFW Airport with a tiny suitcase and a snazzy little duffel bag. Well, 25 years later, she is now happily married to that blue-eyed cowboy. They have four grown children ages 24 to 18 who became willing guinea pigs when she unwittingly stumbled upon the world of homeschooling. Wildflower Academy flourished for 15 years. They survived and thrived, and you can too. Vivian will be covering a wide range of issues that face homeschoolers. What do you do with kids in the summer? How to set up your one-room schoolhouse? How obedience is paramount? And what to do with those snakes? 
Plus, you'll be sharing ideas and insights that she gleaned from other homeschoolers. So join us for an engaging hour with a sociable homeschooler. Vivian McNinney, Friday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. This is Author Talk. My name is Brian Houston, and today we are talking about a children's book that you should be interested in. The name of the book is called Dingle, and it is published by Author House, and the author of the book is Audrey Kinsella. And Audrey is on the phone with us right now from North Carolina, is that correct? Yes, it is, Asheville, North Carolina. Outstanding, beautiful area there. How long have you lived there? About 10 years. I would think that that would be the uh, the ideal place to sit down and write a book. That's exactly what I did. And <laughs> I write other things, too, but I, that was the main uh, book that I wrote, children's book. I also want to tell you there's a subtitle on the book that I think is important to add. Please do. The, hel- the Helpful Ice Cream Cone Delivery Dog. He's, he's a wannabe service dog. So that's that's what Dingle is all about. Oh, very good. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about your background first of all before we talk about your uh, your life as a children's book author. Uh, what were you doing before? Well, I've always been a, a healthcare writer. I write um, articles and books mainly about new technology and healthcare. And uh, one of my last uh, official positions, I was mainly freelance writer. Um, I worked as um, a director at the National Rehabilitation Hospital, and I'd also um, been living with MS, multiple sclerosis, and so I worked very closely with disabled people and showing them new tools that they could use. You know, they were recently disabled by stroke or car accident, something like that, and um, this is how Dingle really features key. He wants to help people, too, so I know I, I'm going on a tangent, but I just wanted to say a lot of things that I did learn at the hospital helped me figure out how I could help other people um, when they were getting discharged at home. They resisted getting any tools or learning new, you know, they said, oh, no, that makes me look old. You know, they didn't want to use a cane or mm-hmm. things. And these were people of all ages and both genders, you know, it didn't matter. So helping people get assistance is, is really a, it's a challenge, you know, and I am as resistant as a- anybody. So I sort of write, wrote what I knew when I introduced Dingle, who just wanted to help. That was his ticket. Great backstory on that. Now, uh, so you go from uh, writing about health care and working in health care and, and uh, dealing with helping people who have uh, different uh, illnesses and uh, have different problems. Uh, how did this turn into writing a children's book? Well, I, I mentioned I live with multiple sclerosis, which uh, for some people, it, it's different for every person. I had it for, I've had it for 30 years, but um, around five years ago it really kicked in so you get kind of uh, fatigued and you can't walk very well and just at that time that it kicked in uh, a friend of mine had to get knee surgery and he had nine puppies just co- coincidentally uh, and the day his surgery was scheduled um, so he asked me to take one of them and Dingle is a real life dog a black lad and I did take him into my house and he was just so helpful and just wanted to do everything, you know, right, and uh, so I, I was able to walk, and I, I walked in several uh, places, and then as my MS was kicking in, and hot summer days, that's when it really gets triggered in, in the heat, um, I had to sit down on benches, and say, oh, Dingo, you know, I have to take a break, and he just sat there, just looked and said, you know, whatever, whatever you need, you know, <laughs> if I can help, you know, I'll, I'll wait, you know. And I thought, what could this dog do to help me? I thought, you know, I thought of service dogs. I had seen them and heard about them. But I thought, I'm not blind, and, you know, I don't need... There There was different things I thought I, I knew about service dogs. But I thought, no, he wants to do something to really help him. What would he do? So I just imagined him creating a uh, saddlebag that would be insulated, and he could carry ice cream cones. <laughs> from the ice cream stand to me and anybody else that was with me. So that would be his huge service that he would do. And I worked with engineers a lot at the National Rehabilitation Hospital, and they always had this way of looking at things like, problem, oh, how can I help? Let's, let's see, let's fix that. So I sort of transferred that to Dingle, and he's, there's an engineer in the book that helps him uh, figure out how to sew it up and 
get the saddlebag going, and that that was his creation. So it was really fabulous. That's how he figured out how he could help. So Dingle so, Dingle had a bit of an engineering mind too. Yes, he did. That that was his uh, great service to me. You know, I, I I do think a lot of dogs that look at you. You know, it's just that way of how can I help? You know, I love you. You know, let me help. <laughs> so I figured out a way that he could. So that was great. So, so do you? That's how you see. Illustrated in the book, I mean, it's, uh, m- most people comment on illustrations. They're just so fabulously colorful, and uh, Dingle's just smiling and happy and just can't wait to get to ne- the next task to help. So I think that's fabulous. Now, is Dingle still with you? He's not with me. His owner got better. He's oh. about five years old now, but he was with me for three years. It was really fabulous companion. That must have been hard to give Dingle up. Yes, it is, but, you know, he still lives on because I, I do um, give readings, and it's not so much the readings, but I want to show children, like, what they could do if they would like to help. And the reason that started, first I just wanted to share the book about the cute dog, and that always went over big. But a little girl in the audience stood up and said, I want to be just like Dingle. <laughs> and I thought, oh, really? <laughs> I thought of different ways children could help, because a lot of times people don't think that children really have the time or interest to help elderly or disabled people. And I'm really convinced that they need to know what to do. And once you show them things, like they can't wait to get at it. So um, I I used to have a fabulous garden here in Asheville, and um, I'm not able to do that anymore. I can't bend down and stand up and everything. But I I did make a good relation with a seed um, person who sold seeds, and um, I asked him if he could contribute some uh, to like a session I would give to children. And he just sent hundreds of them. And that's what I did at the YMCA. I had uh, about 100 kids come, and they all planted a seed in a cup. And I told them, you know, take it home to, like, a relative or a neighbor or somebody like that. And I've done that ever since then. And to the other groups and also to seniors who, who miss being outside and uh, being able to do that. And I think that's really important. It doesn't seem like much, this little plastic cup, you know, with flower seed, but... You know, it's bringing, like, a little bit of the world into their room or their apartment and, you know, not being able to get out. You know, they can't really look out the window all the time to see how things are going. But having that cut right on their windowsill, I I think that that's really just, you know, fabulous for them. It it doesn't seem like much, but it's really good. So Dingle, in that way, is living on, you know. And, and, you know, the funny thing about it is you you make a profound uh, thought there talking about children. And I I do think that uh, children probably are more willing to help than uh, adults are if you just give them the opportunity and show them how. Yeah, I really think so. Because another thing that I found at the National Rehab Hospital was um, there were so many people that were getting discharged. And they really, they were going home and they were happy to be going home, but they really didn't know if they'd be able to live there. They didn't really question that, but... um, it was real clear after they got home, like, physical therapists would come in and see you know, they had too many steps, and, you know, they just didn't have the gait that they used to. So um, I thought, like, there were certain things I would do, and so I went in and just showed them, and sometimes I'd show some of the young neighbors that wanted to help. You know, people say, well, how can I help? But, you know, they didn't really think that they're not trained as healthcare professionals. They really didn't think they could help. But I found you just go into a house and find out somebody's routine, like, say, in the morning. Uh, they have cereal. So early, well, early in the evening or late afternoon, you go in and you take out the bowl, the spoon, the box of cereal, and, you know, just set it out so they don't have to reach and grab for things and, you know, maybe things are out of reach. So, you know, you just have things set up, and I know it's not like taking somebody on a cruise or something. It's not, you know, changing their life, but it's just helping them do the day-to-day things. So I think, you know, children are real capable of doing that. They just couldn't wait to do that. Like, how can I help? So... Yeah, that that was great to well, have a set, set task that yeah. they could do. And we can't take for granted uh, the small things that uh, may seem small to us could end up being very big things to the people who are being helped. And then obviously, oh, too, yeah. it gives the children such a, a sense of purpose that uh, they may decide to uh, devote their lives to service when they see how good it feels. Yeah, and I think even just general volunteering work, I think, is great. Because a lot of times, I, I don't know, I just seem to meet a lot of people who think like, Oh, kids today, they don't. But I, I just don't agree with that. I, I think we have to show or set, set an example. You know, that, mm-hmm. that's great. So sure. I think that's what Dingle is all about, you know, just showing how things can change, you can improve things, make people happy. So it doesn't sound like much, but it, it really is. You know, I just uh, found 
with my uh, problem, I mean, there wasn't really a saddlebag. But, you know, just the idea that he could find, like, a hot summer day. It was, like, 95 degrees. You know, what could he do? Well, that's what I figured out he could do. <laughs> no, that's great. It's a great idea. Now, uh, how long did it take you to write this book? And was it difficult to go from writing the kind of technical writing that you'd done to uh, writing for a child? No, because I, I, I have a son who's now 30. But I, I used to read just phenomenal numbers of books <laughs> to him. He, he read before he... He could read before he started school. He just loved. So I, I always did read a lot of children's books, but I, I just found just telling the story was really important. Um, keep it simple, and uh, it's only 20 pages, but it just goes from the germ of the idea, and there's a light bulb over his head, you know. How can I do that? Because he saw a dog uh, also walking, and he had a saddlebag, and he said, hey, you know, uh, as they talked, you know, in the book, and... <laughs> my imagination okay. what are you doing with that he said well you know, I'm carrying my my walker's uh, water bottle and uh, you know and bone for me so he got this idea like well I would get that too and then he figured out how it would you know develop into this ice cream cone carrier you know with insulation so everything would work out so you know it just sort of went from one idea to another it wasn't complicated but I also wanted to do like the dogs talk and they're thinking and they're doing things there's so many children's books where like it's just these stick thing figures and they don't really uh, do anything you know except like be there and get petted so and that's how Bingle starts in the beginning of the book that the owner real she's in a wheelchair and she's just resisting getting any help and so it's not just elderly and disabled people but it's those resisting people that you really want to target because that was me I mean it took me like three years to even ask somebody for help to go food shopping you know grocery shopping mm. and I was just so stubborn and I know many people are exactly like me they don't want to ask for help and Dingle just kept at it you know he just uh, early in the book though uh, the the woman said oh I could take do everything myself it just takes a little longer and there's Dingle sitting there and listening and there's this little thought you could see, you could read it, that he's thinking like, oh, it's just Pat's and good dog, you know, she doesn't even want to let me help. So, you know, there was always this idea that he wanted to be the service dog, and so he got to be. And it sounds like it was a, a little therapeutic for you. You learned something about yourself through the book. Oh, yeah. I, I found, I I had this one incident that I'll never, and that really got me going, was I, I was doing things, I was still a writer, and a light bulb went out over my desk, and I needed that, and I thought, oh, well, I'll just go change it, and I got the stool, and I got a phone book, there was phone books, you know, and I couldn't <laughs> believe it, I couldn't reach it, and I thought, oh, I'll just get something else, and I thought, you know, I'm going to kill myself, because I live by myself, I thought, I've got to ask for help, so I asked somebody, um, I could see a neighbor was walking out, I said, you know, Billy, could you help me uh, change a light bulb, you know, I hate to ask you, and I... I, you know, I always do it myself, and I just went on and on, and he just said, well, where's the bulb? And then he just, he was like six foot five, and he just you know, changed it, no problem. I thought, boy, I could have killed myself falling off a chair or something. So, yeah, I had to learn that the hard way. Well, I'm glad you, <laughs> I mean, didn't, lear- you didn't learn it the hardest way. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, just letting, I don't know, your pride get the best of you, that, that, that's terrible. You really got over that. You have to get over that. So that's something you learn, yeah. Will we will we see any more Dingle books? Yeah, I've been thinking of, of different people have asked me that. Um, I go to the YMCA every day, and uh, a lot of people just were real interested there, and they mainly older people, and they bought it for their grandchildren and all that stuff, which was nice. They said, well, when's the next one? When's the next one coming? And so I just thought of it a few days ago, especially in preparation for this interview. I was thinking, what else could Dingle do to really help? And that's when I thought, you know, I really need to get, like, a another tool bag, a toolbox for all the things, and I find I need it, too, because I'm pretty disabled now. Um, all the things that you can't do when you're at home easily. And so, like, I've invested in things like reachers, you know, so you grab things that are high or that you drop. And, uh, you know, it's just this little thing that it mm-hmm. has a uh, magnet at the end, so if you drop coins or a paper clip or something, it's really great. So... There's bunches of things that, uh, mittens and things that just, uh, just help you to do things more easily. If you don't have really good dexterity or, um, 
I don't know if you just sort of plant it in a chair. Like there's things that you just can't do. So there's all these tools that um, I think if you ever uh, look at something from the ARP or uh, there's things on TV all the time that will just help things be easier. Mm-hmm. And so they're really for the elderly, but I think a lot of elderly also are, are disabled. So it's like the same population, which is huge. You know, it's just millions of people and growing every day. You know, as baby boomers are aging. So, you know, just having a toolbox, that's, that's going to be uh, Dingle's next project, is finding the ones that really are needed and work. So it makes people very happy. Very good. Great story. Yeah. Where can you find your book? Well, I, Dingle has its own website. I sell it online. It's um, www.dingleenterprises.com. So it's available there. And it's available in some stores, but, you know, if you just... Um, uh, right to Author House, they have them too. It's been out for several years, but um, I really don't think it ages just because, like, the um, the problem really doesn't go away. You know, there's a really huge uh, disabled community, and, uh, you know, helping people, elderly and or disabled, you know, is just uh, an ongoing problem that I think we all need to address. Well, I think you've done a terrific job of addressing it with this book, and we want to encourage people to uh, be sure and check it out. Again, the uh, the website, one more time. www.dingleenterprises, D-I-N-G-L-E, enterprises.com. Outstanding. The name of the book, Dingle, the Helpful Ice Cream Cone Delivery Dog. The author, Audrey Kinsella, it is published by Author House, and uh, so be sure and pick up a copy of the book. I know your child will enjoy it, and uh, you might learn a little something about yourself as well. Audrey, thank you so much for being on with us today. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate the opportunity to share this. Uh, It's great and uh, delightful to talk to you. Best of luck with the book, even though it's been out for a while. uh, Maybe this will uh, reignite it, and uh, you can share it with a whole new generation of people. Yeah, that's super. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. That's Audrey Kinsella. Again, the book, Dingle, the Helpful Ice Cream Cone Delivery Dog, and it's published by Author House. I'm Brian Houston. This is Author Talk. Thank you very much for listening.